This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We have new episodes every Thursday, so subscribe today to make sure you don't miss out. Now, it's traditional to eat a lot at Christmas. But did you know that winter has been a time of feasting for far longer, with food evolving through the ages? And we've got a full menu of delectable dinners through the ages, from prehistory to the near present, to discuss. We'll look at what was eaten where and when, including at Stonehenge, medieval castles and grand residences. Joining me are Properties Historian's team leader, Dr Andrew Han, and Properties Historian, Dr William Wyeth. Will, if I can start off with you, let's start by travelling back in time to prehistory and the evidence of ancient feasts that have been discovered near Stonehenge. What can you tell us about these and what are the dietary clues that Stone Age settlers left behind there? At the time of Stonehenge, which is the late Neolithic period, so that's about four and a half thousand years ago, we think that people gathered together to take part in midwinter feasts. Excavations at a settlement at nearby Durrington Walls revealed thousands of bones of animals, especially pig and cattle, which had been found in rubbish piles around the house remains there. Now, by looking carefully at how much the pig teeth were worn, archaeological scientists could tell us that they had been mostly killed when they were about nine months old. So these pigs were probably born in spring, had been raised, fattened and killed around midwinter. The pork had been roasted on spits, whereas the archaeological evidence suggests that the beef had been made into stews cooked in large pots. Now, people looking closely at the bones realised that some of them still had meat attached, so they must have had plenty of food. So that's what we can tell from the Stone Age diet from places like Stonehenge and the nearby settlement at Dorrington Walls. And this all ties in with the winter solstice. I believe there was a lot of feasting going on before that grand event in midwinter. There definitely was, yeah. This was a time for getting together and for observing certain key features during the agricultural year, which we'll go into a little bit more as we go through history. We'll see it's actually something of a, of a common theme from prehistory through the medieval period into the early modern period, actually. Mm. And the whole reason, I think, as we discussed in previous episodes and last year, is that Christmas and midwinter is, is a human experience. It doesn't really matter what religion you are. Absolutely. It's, it's about recognising some key changes in your environment and recognising how the change in light levels, in climate, in vegetation, in plant growth and all these kinds of things affect how we humans up to very recently used to live our entire lives through these cycles of, of kind of um, natural forces almost. Yeah. So you've described at Stonehenge how there was great feasting going on ahead of the winter solstice there. And it's clear that they did eat a lot of meat, the uh, Neolithic people. What else do we know about their diet from the food remains at that archaeological site, Durrington Walls, which is near Stonehenge? So we know that people were eating a huge amount of meat, as you say, but we also know that they were eating plants because archaeologists found the remains of those plants. We know, for example, that they were eating things like crab apples, hazelnuts, sloes, that's the berries of the blackthorn bush, for example, and also blackberries. And we know this because close examination of the, art, of the archaeological remains, the earth and, and the artefacts left behind, reveal that there were traces of seeds, as well as the remains of the plants themselves found at the settlement at Durrington Walls. So a close examination told us that people weren't just eating meat, but they were also e eating from plants that they could find in the local area, for example. That's really detailed archaeological evidence, I must admit. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it's incredibly detailed. Yeah, I mean, it, it involves the close examination of things like soil and, and experts who can recognize different kinds of seeds and plant remains and be able to place those exactly at a specific moment in time is, is one of the magic, magic qualities of archaeology. And Darrington Walls really throws that up. Absolutely. And it really adds real tangibility to the Stonehenge story at midwinter there. Why and when do you think these feasts took place? We did just touch on the midwinter solstice idea, but um, can you tell us a bit more about about the reason potentially yeah so i mean the, the way that you expressed it as a human experience i think really captures it people were probably gathering in winter to celebrate the midwinter solstice because we know that the stones at stonehenge were carefully built to align with the setting sun on the shortest day and that's actually pretty close to our date for christmas now the reason the midwinter solstice may have been important to the people celebrating these feasts was because it marked the darkest time of the year, which had the shortest day and the longest night. And so for the people of Stonehenge who were farmers, growing crops and tending to herds of animals, knowing when the seasons were changing was important. Winter might have been a time of fear, a time when days were short and cold, and they certainly are where I'm living at the moment. So people probably longed for the return of light and warmth and, and heat and, and spring. And so marking this yearly cycle may have been one of the reasons, in fact, why Neolithic people constructed Stonehenge in the first place. Right, let's move on to medieval castles then. We're fast forwarding a few thousand years when England's fortresses, castles and manor houses were well established. And by this time, Christmas was a central fixture of the medieval calendar, what with Christianity having spread. What was so important about Christmas to the medieval people? At the time when castles were mainly built and inhabited between the 11th and 16th centuries, nearly everyone in England was Christian. As you say, it's been a Christian country for a long time, and for the most part of that time period belonged to the Roman Catholic faith. Now, there was a small Jewish community uh, in England from the Norman Conquest to the reign of Edward I, who expelled the Jews from England in 1290. And although that community, there was probably a community that persisted thereafter, they are largely undocumented. So, in a sense, because Christmas is a, is a central Christian festival, it's so important in this kingdom that was Christian. Now, it isn't completely clear uh, how the 25th of December came to be Christ's birthday, but the simple explanation is that it was a long process involving both official church councils in the 5th and 6th century, 4th and 5th centuries, I should say, and some general overlap in important dates in the calendar of the Roman Empire and the midwinter festivals of pagan northern Europe perhaps sharing some points of common origin, in fact, with the feasts uh, I've just talked about at Stonehenge. Now, remember, um, medieval England, much like actually the time that came before the medieval period, was nearly an entirely agricultural society where cultivation and the raising of herds was part of everyday life. And so knowing the end of winter and the beginning of spring was really important. So to begin to answer the question, a combination of these reasons is probably lies at the heart of why Christmas became so important at this date. But there is one more point I want to make, and it relates to understanding the kind of the medieval frame of mind. So it's important from the perspectives today of, of religion and faith that we recognize the world of medieval England. And that world saw very little distinction between what we would call religion and daily life. So for them, we think many things were bound up in the ways of seeing the world, which mixed up things like saints, miracles, devotion, prayer, patronage and intercession. That's the communication between you and saints. So certainly, although the Reformation changed some of this, the longer term impact took a few more years to be felt. So we shouldn't forget that the people who observed Christmas in these chapels and churches and abbeys and priories and friaries and castles and cathedrals across England 
probably nearly all really believed in the messages and the themes of the Christian doctrine around Christmas. So we shouldn't be too keen, as I, as I have in the past, I have to say, kind of see these see Christmas as an extension, a simple extension of pagan practice, because although there is something in that idea, if we dismiss it, we would ignore genuine evidence for observance, for faith, for conviction of the people of medieval England that, that, and, and, and how they felt about things like Christmas. I wonder if actually recognising the authenticity of how people felt about things in the past could be extended as well to the Neolithic period, to be honest. Mm. Well, I was about to say, actually, it sounds as though that you're sort of replacing the prehistoric quasi-religion with a new one. So you still have the agricultural calendar very much at the centre of that. Yeah, absolutely, because it's it's a pre-modern society, and this is this is not a situation. I think it's fair to say that is that is unique to to England in that respect. Much of Europe, and indeed much of the pre-modern, pre-industrial world, is predicated upon the cycles of cultivation of food, and and for places where the climate is quite, relatively speaking, harsh in terms of having quite mild summers, but but quite cold and dark winters. In England, it was important to be able to mark these events, and that's actually. One of the reasons, so so in medieval Christianity, Easter is by and large considered the major festival, not Christmas. But one of the reasons Christmas appears to be increasingly popular is a reflection, certainly in Northern Europe, of, of the fact that the festival marks the darkest part of the year, after which things improve, things get lighter, things get milder. So that's a big part of why, why Christmas is important in the medieval North, if that makes sense. Yes, the Northern Hemisphere and the tilt of the earth, and that's how these festivals come about really. Getting onto the diet of the people living in castles and manor houses in the medieval period, I'm presuming it's quite ostentatious for those rich landowners. What kind of food did the well-off eat and did this change much in the run-up to Christmas? The first thing to say about about medieval Christmas food is there wasn't actually dishes that were specifically related to Christmas, but it was rather food that was consumed for special days of the year, for feast days which were consumed at Christmas. Now, there, there, there are two quick points I want to make about the ordinary food of, of the well-off before moving to the festive. So the first point about ordinary food is that bread and ale were universal and ubiquitous. So everyone ate this all the time. It was being manufactured all the time. Bread came in the form of thick slices, which was treated like a plate. So during meal times, when you were sat in your great hall celebrating a meal, when the courses arrived, you were given a slice of bread laid in front of you as a plate, but which you were not supposed to eat. This was literally as a plate, and once it was soggy, once it was uh, inedible, it would be taken away and replaced with a fresh slice. And in fact, this idea of not consuming bread is also the same for not consuming the pastry of pies, but you were not intended to eat the pastry, just the contents now, the second point I want to make is about cutlery. So people didn't use cutlery as we would understand it for most of the medieval period. And in fact, forks are a very late introduction to England, perhaps as late as the 18th century. So when you're dining in hall, the carver, this person who, who gives you portions of food, gives you a small portion of, let's say, ham or part of a fish fillet. And this is placed on your slice of bread. As we know, we've not got a plate. And then diners who've been offered to wash their hands in a basin would use their personal knife to cut a small portion about the size of a coaster for your cup of tea and place this on their bread plate. And from this, they would take little bite-sized portions. So I'd like to think about the size of 50p 
and they would swallow it. It, it was considered impolite to chew your food because uh, medieval types thought that they looked like an animal when you did that. So you were to cut a portion small enough to swallow, bring it to your mouth with your right hand because obviously your left hand is used, used during toiletry. Now, if you're served something like a stew or a pottage, which is very common, it's like a kind of a thick porridge mixed with vegetables and, and some pieces of meat, you would use a spoon from the table. It depends on how it was served, but if there was a pottage pot put in front of you, you and perhaps three or four people either side of you would use your own spoons, dunk it in, take a mouthful from your spoon, and then go for a second or a third if you liked it. Hygiene was very different in the medieval period, that's all I'll say. <laughs> that is remarkable. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You incredible. can only touch things with your right hand. Bread is a plate. You mm-hmm. don't eat the bread once it's soggy underneath. You get a new slice that's of right. bread for the next course, shall we say. That's right, yeah. Anything else I missed? <laughs> uh, no forks. And and you weren't feasting on, let's say, a slice of ham. You were given small portions of food. For, for the well-off, some dinners could last a few hours, and so there were many courses coming through. Not so much starter, main course, and dessert, because the medieval diet didn't quite work that way, but it was a continuous stream of interesting-sounding dishes. So I've actually got some examples of, of dishes that appear at Christmas, for example, right. um, which I hope will give a sense of the spectacle involved. <laughs> yeah, well, I can get a sense um, of how long it's going to take to eat a Christmas meal already. As you'll see, chefs have been working on the dishes involved at Christmas and feast days like it for weeks in advance. And in modern financial terms, we're talking tens of thousands of pounds going to the preparations of individual, very ornate dishes. Food was food was very important for the powerful as a means to express themselves. So for a typical Christmas dish in medieval England, for example, the most impressive dish would undoubtedly be the boar's head. Now, the boar's head appears in documents in at least the 12th century, and even then it was considered one of the best dishes to serve. So it was carefully prepared over several days, but it wasn't simply a roasted head like you would roast a turkey today, but it was rather more like an elaborate pork pie contained within the skin of a boar's head. And Hmm. now, boar was an especially favoured animal because it was a very difficult beast to kill. And in fact, boar went extinct in England in the 13th century. And though we know that people were dining on boar after, so we think they were either importing them or they were keeping them in special parks or they were actually breeding wild boar with, with species of domestic pigs. Another dish that came very close to boar's head was a dish called brawn. Now, today we think of brawn, we think head cheese, we think some sort of gelatinous mixture of miscellaneous offal, perhaps. Whereas actually in the medieval period, it was one of the most favoured and much prized cuts of meat during the medieval feast. And it was often served with boar's head because it was actually made out of the meat of a boar's shoulder, which is the favoured cut of the animal. So this piece of flesh was deboned, boiled, it was preserved in things like vinegar, it was allowed to cool and drain. And when it was served a few days after, it was served in thick slices. And I actually wonder if the modern tradition of the Christmas ham in some way relates to this tradition of the boar's head and brawn being served at Christmas. And mm. the, the final dish I want to draw your attention to for Christmas, it's everything is, is song and dance, is the peacock. Peacocks okay. were served popular dish during medieval Christmas feasts. And the point of the peacock was actually not so much the meat, which, uh, which some early writers actually said you should be careful of, but rather because the peacock being served in its eye-catching plumage, uh, this exotic animal, was really kind of a feast for the eyes. And so it was as much about showing off the ability to have a peacock and to dine on this animal 
which was rather grand and exotic, as much as actually enjoying the meat itself. Then all that was washed down with wine, as, as we may enjoy over the coming Christmas period. We know that people indulged quite a bit. So in 1296, we have records from Goodrich Castle in Herefordshire, a wonderful site, where they consumed the modern equivalent of between 84 and 120 bottles of wine in a single day during Christmas Day. <laughs> so they were they were knocking it back. They were having a, a great time. Wow. Um, it was red wine. It could be white wine. They also served a sweet wine. And they also served a spiced wine called Hippocras, which was given with wafers at the end of a meal, so kind of like a, an end of meal dessert, if you can, th- if, if such a thing exists. And then everyone else, if you weren't well off, mm. you were consuming large amounts of ale, not not especially strong ale necessarily. People could also drink water, beer, which does appear quite late. It appears between the 15th and really the 16th century. It's imported usually first, and then it starts being made in England proper as they get a hold of the hops that are necessary to brew beer. The poorer people, you mentioned they would drink the ale and this sort of thing, but their food, how would that differ? The food wouldn't differ hugely from what came before, and you might find that they'd be tr- be attempting to replicate some of the things that were served at the high table, but the chances are they might actually do the kinds of things that the people from the Neolithic at Stonehenge did, was to find themselves a piglet and fattening up in time to then be served at Christmas, so that the it, dish itself wasn't especially ostentatious, but the idea that you would serve an entire animal and that you'd prepare for, that, for the serving of that animal all through the year up to Christmas would be the point of celebration, and then you would also consume just more food than you would usually. Apart from lots of food and drink, what else made a medieval Christmas in the castles, manors and ordinary homes of the kingdom? There were a variety of traditions, not all of which sit exactly at Christmas, but in the medieval period there are a few customs that appear which speak to us today, I suppose. One of them was to invite guests to a meal, and in the case of castles and manors, the lords and ladies of the estate would invite tenants to dine with them. Entertainment was provided in the festive period in different settings, so we have records from the 16th century of the Earl of Northumberland paying for a nativity play to be performed in his chapel. We have another record of the same Earl giving payments to his bear ward, that's the man who looked after the Earl's beasts, including a bear, who would have some sort of performance involving the bear, perhaps bear baiting during the Christmas period. And we know from the 13th century, at least, and this is probably something that goes on even earlier still, aristocrats paying out for things like music and performances with masks. So we have records of masks being purchased of wild men, of dragons, of ghosts, of men with beards and of women. So Mm. none of this is quite as good as the Christmas special of Doctor Who, but it gets some way there. It's a medieval (laughs) equivalent. (laughs) So there's quite a lot of fun and hijinks and uh, eating and drinking and very much being merry by the sounds of things. Did Christmas change much during the medieval period? Because the medieval period is, as we were just discussing before we started recording, is a long period in history and it doesn't have a real complete end, does it? No, it's complicated by the fact that we don't have very much evidence. So our best evidence comes from the later periods, which is close to when we are now, so we know more. Before the 13th century, we really don't know very much. We do know, for example, from the records that do survive, that King Henry III served his son a boar's head at Christmas at Windsor Castle. We know from 13th century records that people were fasting in the times around Christmas, were observing abstinence, and we know some of the kinds of foods that they were eating, which everybody talked about. One thing that that is important is from the 14th and really the 15th, we see greater emphasis on the very ornate and sophisticated and luxurious dishes being served over the course of several hours during great feasts like Christmas. And there are several reasons why this may have been the case. 
there was a greater access to imported goods in the late medieval period. But historians who've looked at the 14th century especially tell us that the Black Death may have marked a big shift in kind of the way that society understood itself. We know that after the Black Death, the wealth of peasants rose substantially, and we know that landowners were proportionally much poorer And so it looks like we have this elaboration of feasts after the Black Death amongst the well-off that they're trying to find a way of buttressing their position of privilege, of emphasising their positions of authority through this excessive consumption, which, which certainly appears before. But what we see after the Black Death is an expansion of this and also an expansion of aristocratic households where we have hundreds of liveried followers. These are followers wearing the colours of the house or the, the heraldic devices of that house. But I think the biggest change that in Christmas, and, and this, this will no doubt not surprise listeners, was the Reformation, which began with a series of parliamentary acts between 1532 and 4, and in 1534 the Act of Supremacy placed Henry VIII as the head of the Church of England, and so that marks a substantial shift, certainly from the top, but that shift at the top begins to trickle down into the rest of society, so that by 1549, for example, we're told that the prayer book had drastically reduced the number of feast days from over 100 to just 21. And Christmas Mm. was included in this. And those days were called red letter days because of the way that they were printed in prayer books. So the Reformation is probably the biggest single change, but things like the Black Death represent kind of a subtler shift over time. Well, just imagine if we had more than 100 feasting days today, we wouldn't get anything done, would we? We wouldn't get anything done, no. Um, Let's move on to the Tudor feasts. You were talking there about um, Henry VIII and, you know, obviously the change to Protestantism in England. When we think of Henry VIII, though, we do think of someone very ostentatious, very grand, very arrogant, really throwing his power and weight around. Politically, physically, he was a large, tall man, Uh, quite fat as well by the end was christmas more extravagant for the wealthy and his class in his reign absolutely and 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 you mentioned henry VIII specifically i mean he spent uh in enormous sums and i i I don't use that that word lightly Uh, recently the national archives suggested that in today's money he spent 13 and a half million pounds which amounted to nearly a year's annual tax returns for the entire kingdom of england on his first Christmas as king. Thirteen and a half million pounds. It's, wow. it's, it boggles the mind, even from a modern perspective, let alone a perspective where it's essentially about 70% of the national expenditure on a single 12-day period, which is what Christmas was. But we should also recognise that within royalty, Tudor royalty and, and those that came before, it wasn't always an elaborate array laid on for Christmas. Uh, for example, Henry's father, also called Henry, was known to be a careful manager of taxation. That's in fact part of the reason that Henry VIII could be so generous with his Christmas spending. That being said, monarchs liked to make a statement with Christmas. So we know in 1482, for example, just before the Tudor period, one of the most lavish feasts ever held at Elton Palace was given for some 2,000 people in Christmas that year by Edward IV during his last visit there before he passed away in the following April. So monarchs liked to show off. Christmas was a, was a really good way to do that. So the, the Christmas banquets in the Tudor period were not radically different from what we think came before. What appears was a an enormous investment in the kinds of things that I've been talking about, uh, exotic spices, birds imported, perhaps the serving of things like porpoises, uh, great pies, some of which could be two feet wide, filled with plum, which was a generic word for kind of 
boiled fruit, spices, herbs, finely ground mints. It was almost like a continuation of the medieval feast, to be honest, but on a scale that befitted the character and the personality of, of Henry VIII. Looking at meat specifically in the reign of Henry VIII and perhaps even later, you mentioned potentially peacock and the boar's head. Certainly. Uh, beef? Yeah, boar's head, brawn, beef, a deer, pork, all manner of little birds. They're just called fowl generally. That could be birds that you would see today. It could be pheasants. It could be all manner of animals. It was it was as much the ostentatious display of animals and, and, and of, of food that matched the expectation. Sometimes you have records of, for example, live birds being put into pies and the pies being heated up and then the pies being opened and the animals flying out. This kind of spectacle is entirely in line with what we'd expect to see at, at Elton under Henry VIII. That's very reminiscent of the nursery rhyme, isn't it? Um, four and 20 blackbirds baked yeah. in a pie. OK, let's move on to dessert in the Tudor period. Uh, can you tell us about what they would eat? It's not completely clear that there was ever like a course called dessert. I mentioned the lightly spiced wine called Hippocras and the wafers that, that would kind of happen at the end of a meal that you'd be served. But there are some familiar Christmas desserts today or, or sweet dishes um, that probably have medieval origins. And so mince pies, by their name, reveal that they originally contained meat. And these were certainly consumed at the Tudor court, although the, the sweet and fruity pies that we had today may be more a recent phenomenon than, than from the Tudor. And as I mentioned, pies are very common throughout the medieval period. By the 17th century, mince pies, which still contained mints, could also contain things like currants and prunes and dates and orange peels and that's where, where I mentioned the ability to import more exotic food comes into its own. It's really only by the 18th century, the mid-18th century, that we see an explicitly sweet minced pie which did not always contain meat. And in fact, the increasing availability of sugar from slave-worked plantations in the Caribbean, owned by people in Britain, probably has a greater impact on, on the modern mince pie as we know it than anything from the medieval period. Christmas pudding. Uh, in origin, Christmas pudding was actually very much like a whole host of dishes cooked in the Tudor court and earlier. The fruity version of what we have today is a more recent development, actually probably similar to mince pies, but Christmas pudding may originally have been a meat dish cooked in a bag or steamed, which is a very common way of cooking medieval food and Tudor food as well, that was gradually made more fruity and spicy over time as palates changed and the ability to access exotic imports improved. And the last sort of dessert I want to mention is something called Twelfth Cake. And this was a cake served at Twelfth Night, which marked the end of those 12 days of Christmas, which the Christmas song refers to on the on the 5th of January. That that 12-day period represents, I am told, the amount of time it took for the three kings, the Magi, to arrive to Bethlehem after Jesus' birth. Now, this, this cake or this pie, usually, I mean, it's probably sweet, but it could be fruity, was baked with a bean concealed within it. And so once it was served, it was served in slices. Whoever had the bean in their slice of cake was made the lord or lady of fasting or of misrule mm. um, and although although th th this kind of phenomenon is attested in quite late sources we believe that the observance of Twelfth Night and the idea of Twelfth Cake may have actually very old origins attested at least in a poem from the 10th century but the earliest evidence for it being celebrated as, as a feast is, is in the 15th century What did they wash most of this down with? So in the Tudor court, ale and wine and probably imported beer. One important thing to draw your attention to is the practice of wassailing or wassailing. I'm, like, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. It's only one of these I words I've, I've been ever told read. It's wassailing. 
Now, wassailing is a practice we see um, probably has origins in at least the Tudor period, if not earlier, and it's a practice of welcoming in the day after Twelfth Night. And if it's a Monday, it's called Plough Monday, after the instrument to turn over earth, because it marks the beginning of the new agricultural cycle. Mm. Um, now, the word wassail, which comes from Old English, is a, apparently a, a borrowing of early Scandinavian, and it essentially means be in good health. So it's I, I approach you, Charles, and I say, be in good health, and you reply to me, Drink and be healthy. It's not clear how old that tradition is, but it seems to be to be old. And how it was practiced in the street, because there are two different kinds of wassailing, one to welcome in the agricultural new year and one in your neighbourhood. You would travel to the residence of a local landowner. You would sing songs and demand gifts. Sometimes you'd demand food. And so some wassailers offered a drink from the wassail bowl in return for receiving gifts from the landowner. And the contents of that bowl, which was kind of a, almost like a communal drink with some sort of currant tea hot ale with spices which is actually probably familiar to those of us who, who enjoy mulled wine during mm. this time of year it's probably a similar kind of taste it's almost like um if you drink this then we'll have good land it's almost superstition as well well let's bring in andrew now dr andrew han we're going to be talking about georgian christmas food now andrew we did just talk about the uh, wassling did that survive into the georgian period as we move through time it did indeed. At Christmas time, during festivities and parties, what better to do than to raise the spirits of the passing with the wassail bowl at the dinner table, passed from guest to guest, toasting the health of your fellow man? Um, is, is there evidence of this surviving in the records? Yes, referenced in um, various different documentary sources, cartoons and, and news sheets and, and so forth. Yes, it was. it's a very common and it would have been a widely recognised custom for the time. Mm. Um, and the drink itself that was in the wassail bowl was very little different than that that uh, Will has just described. It would have been a sort of lightly spiced ale, flavoured perhaps with honey or maybe with some sugar towards the end of the Georgian period. And it would have been not that different than the mulled wine we have today. Very tasty. The Christmas celebrations that went on at English Heritage's Georgian properties, what evidence do we have of what happens there? For the Georgians, Christmas lasted not just for the 12 nights that we talk of in the modern period, but really from St Nicholas's Day, which is the 6th of December, right way through to 12th night in January. So for the wealthy, that meant that you had a whole month for which to organise games, balls, gift giving, and of course, eating and drinking. I mean, for instance, the Braybrook family at Audley End in Essex, they would have spent Christmas at Audley End itself. That They always spent there during the 1820s, 1830s, for instance, and it would be after a period during the autumn when they'd been travelling, visiting friends and relations. So it was a time for all gathering together as a family unit at the house. And the visitor books suggest that they often had, you know, 20 or 30 people dining every day during the latter part of the month. So that's a lot of guests, isn't it? And do you think they would have stayed? Yes, we think they stayed over. There were plenty of guest rooms at large country houses like Audley End or, or Rest Park in Bedfordshire and other of our, our sites. So, yeah, the gathering together was all part of the the Christmas experience. And, and quite often you'd have, you know, sort of relatives from other parts of the country coming to you at Christmas. So very much as we do today, you'd have your aunties and your uncles and your cousins. And it would be a, a time where the sort of wider family could get together. 
What about Rest Park? Did you find anything on there? At Rest, we do have some evidence that they built a, a fantastic new sort of bow-fronted dining room in the uh, mid-18th century. And, and this really came to its own in the uh, winter months when they could position torches outside so that they could see them through the window and uh, while they ate their Christmas meal. Yes, we have evidence of them having fabulous dinners with their various friends. They had a, a group of friends who we've heard about in earlier podcasts, these literary friends who gathered together uh, as a sort of coterie and they they would get together at Christmas sometimes, presumably reciting poetry to each other, exchanging information about the latest books they've been reading and consuming the lovely food, which would have been the usual sort of fare that you would expect at Christmas at this time. Yeah, and of course, Rest Park is in Bedfordshire, so similar sort of part of the country, really, as Audley End. What about the food precisely? Could you give us a, a sense of a Georgian Christmas menu? Right, well, the first thing to note about the Georgian period is that you have a lot more etiquette, and a lot more rules about dining than you might have had in, in some of the earlier periods that Will was talking about. So these rules and etiquette are very much about marking out your sort of breeding and distinction. It wasn't just how you ate, but how the table was set, how the food was served, what utensils were used. And by this period, we have the full set of knife, fork and spoon. In fact, we have lots of different knives and forks and spoons, depending on which course you're eating. And the food for much of the Georgian period would have been served in a sort of service style known as à la Française. This is where you had three courses, so it was the, all of the different dishes were split into three courses, and within each course, all the different dishes for that course would be brought out and placed on the table at the same time, and they would be arranged together in a sort of elaborate symmetrical pattern. So you wouldn't just have one dish brought out, you'd bring out maybe 20 dishes of different types of food all placed on the table in a, in a, in a pattern and then people would just almost like a, a buffet would just then take from the different dishes whatever they fancied for that particular course. Very nice. And the food, Yeah, very, very nice indeed and the food that was served up would have been quite a lot more varied than what we'd be used to today. So within these three courses, your first course is going to be your soups, your fish and your entrees, that sort of fancy savoury dishes that that are show off the cook's skill. So particular Christmas favourites might have been things like turtle soup, which was made from the meat and green cartilage lining of a green turtle. And of course the turtles had to be imported, they were brought over from the Caribbean mm. and they were imported live and then obviously killed once they got here and, and, and made into soup. And this fashion in the period, particularly in the Regency period, the fashion for turtle soup actually nearly drove the species to extinction because of the number of people eating it. Crikey. Other dishes, fish dishes, were very, very common for the first course. And then you'd have a whole range of different fish. It wouldn't just be, you know, salmon or cod or whatever like we would eat, but you'd have dory, brill, gudgeon, smelts, perch, anchovies, scallops and whelks, cockles, mussels. All of these were seen as being appropriate types of fish to eat during the Christmas period. Mm. So that's your first course. That's, so you've now finished your, your soups and your entrees and your fish. Well, then you, get Andrew, on, but I'm full. <laughs> but you're only just beginning beginning in your meal because now you move on to your second course and this was the roast meats. The thing to indicate is that the Georgians still ate a huge amount of meat just as the Tudors and the medieval people before them had done. By having a lot of different meat dishes on the table it demonstrated how wealthy and powerful you were and the, the meats that were considered the star of the Christmas dinner table were venison and roast beef so no sign of any turkeys yet it's venison and roast beef. And we find people like both Sir John Griffin Griffin at Audley End and also 
Jemima Gray at rest. They were giving gifts of venison to friends and neighbours at Christmas time, and this was a way of sort of cementing your social relations with them because venison as a game animal can't officially be bought and sold, so the only way you can acquire it is through owning your own herd of deer or through be having it gifted to you by someone else. So uh, this was a really important part of your social capital. Eating venison at Christmas, a haunch of venison, was considered a really important thing to do. But also beef. Beef was massively important. Having a sirloin of beef on the table, not only was it seen as showing your wealth and status, but it also was considered to show that you were patriotic, particularly towards the end of the Georgian period, when we were nearly constantly at war with the French. Mm. There was this big distinction drawn between the patriotic you know, sort of manly, virile beef and the sort of effeminate French cuisine with all its sauces and flavours and this sort of thing, which was seen as being distinctly unpatriotic. So in order to show your patriotism, you'd plonk a huge piece of beef on the table at Christmas. Even today, the French call as Les Rose Beef. Yeah. Uh, and and, and this, this really does go back to the Napoleonic period where there was this very big connection between beef and patriotism. But it goes back even further than that. If you look at Henry Fielding's ballad from 1731 and his part of his Grub Street Opera, he has the ballad called The Roast Beef of Old England. And this really portrays beef as being a patriotic dish to counteract the sort of foreign food of the French. <laughs> mm. And that maybe sort of links with the idea that the importance of beef was why, for instance, at Rest Park, there were two fattened bulls were given to the poor of the local villages at Christmas for a feast in 1784. You know, this idea of giving this sort of really patriotic, important meat to the poor was seen as being a very generous act by the owners of the house. Yes, and it's a very filling meat anyway, uh, beef itself. It does take a long time to go through the the body. Um, It does indeed, yeah. But I'm not saying that poultry was not eaten. There was poultry eaten at Christmas, particularly amongst those who didn't have the resources to buy a big joint of beef. And the Christmas goose was one thing. that, And obviously it's immortalised in the children's rhyme. Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat. Please do put a penny in the old man's hat. It's that association of Christmas and goose is one that goes back a long way. Hmm. Turkeys, though, were actually coming in during the Georgian period. And we do see some of the wealthier classes starting to eat turkey. Most of them were bred in Norfolk and Suffolk, that sort of area. They had leather shoes put on them, and then they were walked down to London to be sold for Christmas. Nice. And, and you also find wild turkeys as well being quite prized. For instance, uh, Jemima Marchioness Gray of Rest Park mentions in, in a letter from 1779 that she's having some wild turkeys sent from the Wimpole Estate in Cambridgeshire, which is one of her other houses, down to rest for Christmas. And she also talks about having some sheldrakes, that sort of male ducks and turkeys, having their wings pinioned and then being sent up from London to rest so they could be fattened for Christmas in 1772. So they were being sort of made so they couldn't fly off. And many of the leases for some of the tenants on the estate in this sort of period, even earlier in the 1730s and 40s, include the provision of two turkeys at Christmas to the family. So as well as having to pay your rent, you had to fatten up some turkeys and give them to the landowner for Christmas as part of your rent payment for owning a, or renting a farm. Right. And so that would mean that the family would always know they were going to have plenty of poultry for the festive season because it had all been raised by their tenants. How convenient. <laughs> what about the tenants themselves then? Did they eat similar fare at Christmas compared to the landowner? Um, well, probably goose rather than beef, although they may have had a bit of beef. They would also have eaten dishes like brawn, 
which was the boiled head of a calf or sheep seasoned with spices. And this would be served alongside the main meat dish. And this was something that was eaten by both what you call the tenant classes, but also by the landowners. Other meat that was often eaten, particularly by sort of the lesser sorts, were things like mutton. It was sheep that's over two years old, and that would be served up particularly to servants in the household, but also by tenants and fairly well-to-do labourers as well. Wasn't there something as well called frumity that the poor would eat? There was, yes. This was this was something that well, it was on the it could be on the menu in both aristocratic households, but also amongst the less well off. And it was as a dish that had been eaten really from the medieval period onwards. And it's sort of a porridge, a thick boiled grain dish. You boil up the grain with either milk or broth, and then you can sort of add different ingredients in depending on uh, your wealth and status. So the poor would probably just add a few eggs into it, but the wealthy could add in almonds, currants, sugar, saffron or orange flower water. And it's served usually alongside meat as a, as a pottage that goes alongside it. And it, it just ensures that you've got something to accompany your your meat because vegetables, although they are there in the Christmas diet, they're much less so than they are in said, the modern Christmas dinner. So you would get things like seasonal vegetables like carrots cabbage sprouts parsnips turnips that sort of thing but they would be that they were seen more as sort of peasant food so the wealthy would tend not to really eat as many vegetables so you'd have a a big slab of meat and a few Mm. sort of vegetables to garnish rather than than what we would do so that's the main course but then of course we've also got desserts so what would they have for pudding (laughs) yes tell us about dessert and was it even called dessert or what was it called well it wasn't really because as, as i was saying before there were three courses and the dessert, or what we would call desserts, the entremets, are actually part of the second course. You have the what we would call the puddings placed on the table alongside your roast dish. And quite often, as Will was saying before, a lot of these puddings had quite a lot of meat in them in the medieval and Tudor periods. And so it, it wasn't at all surprising to see them placed on the table at the same time as the turkey or, or the sirloin of beef. So you'd have your plum pudding placed on there at the same time. And plum pudding... As I say, it originally had lots of chopped meat in with it, but it would also have had things like dried prunes and raisins and things. And over time, as you come into the Georgian period, you get more meat, more of the, the fruit and the raisins and also the sugar, as, 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 as Will mentioned, and less of the meat. But you still have a throwback to the meat in the terms of, of, of having suet in these puddings, because obviously suet is, is animal fat. So you still do have a link back to its meaty origins of the Christmas pudding there. And and there was a real tradition of preparing your plum pudding on the Sunday before the first Sunday of Advent. And this was called Stir It Up Sunday. <laughs> and it was really the official start of the Christmas season. And, and this all carries a lot of religious symbolism to it because it was the plum pudding was made traditionally of a mixture of 13 different ingredients representing Christ and the 12 apostles Hmm. and the pudding would be stirred clockwise from east to west to symbolize the journey made from east to west by the magi so it was all really linked up with their religious origins of where this pudding came from and it would be served with a sprig of holly on the top which is a reminder of the crown of thorns and sometimes, you know, as we do today, you'd set fire to it. You pour some spirits on the top and set fire to them. And these were the flames of the Passion of Christ. That's a very strong image, isn't it? You sort of forget about that, don't you? The the, the religious element in all this feasting. But yes, that there, really sums it up. It does. It really does. And the fact that it is a religious festival. You know, the, these are people who've probably been fasting a little bit. And then this is their chance to feast 
and be great for the arrival of Christ. So it really was a period of joyousness in terms of the religious calendar as well as it was for feasting. Well, let's move on to another separate time period where feasting continued, uh, the Victorian era. We know that the Victorians, including Queen Victoria herself, loved Christmas, establishing many of the traditions that we still enjoy today. But did tastes in food change much by this time? Well, you would think that they would have done. But if you were to look at some of the archival resources, for instance, for Audley End, we have a really good set of consumption books dating from the 1850s and 60s, so the beginnings of the Victorian era. These are books which list all the food that was eaten on a daily basis by the family. So it's not recipes as such, but it does list the sort of ingredients. And these show that were still large quantities of roast meat being consumed at Christmas, and it was mainly beef, mutton, and venison for the family on Boxing Day. Mm. You do get a couple of turkeys thrown in there, the odd goose and some fowl and chickens, but it's primarily still beef and mutton that's being eaten. And even if you look at, you know, 1868, this is sort of moving quite far into the 1860s, you see that over the Christmas week, so the week beginning the 20th of December, at Audley End, they, they ate 541 pounds of meat was being eaten. Wow. So that's a huge amount of meat. And a lot of that was in the servants' hall. So the servants are actually getting quite a lot of meat. You know, other things that we, we, we know we heard from the Georgian era and earlier, like mince pies are still popular. You know, a, a well-known Victorian cookery book by Eliza Acton has a recipe for mince pies, which includes still three tablespoons of diced cooked beef and tongue in there, as well as a cup of suet. So you've still got this idea of there being quite a lot of meat in a mince pie, even into the Victorian era. The twelfth cakes that uh, Will mentioned before, these are still very much a tradition by this period, as is food like gingerbread, very much a Christmas thing. If you think about the gingerbread man and also, you know, the gingerbread which often comes into children's nursery rhymes associated with Christmas again. Yes, it's still widely eaten at that time. That's really interesting. You mentioned the Eliza Acton recipe book there. Obviously one of the most famous cooks in the English heritage property pantheon is Mrs Avis Crocombe, of course, who we've covered before in a previous podcast, who worked and lived at Audley End House in Essex. Do any of her Christmas recipes survive? They do indeed. I mean, looking through her recipe book, I, I was I pick out a few here. She includes a recipe for Christmas cake. I know that the live interpreters at Audley End have tried this and they found it was a bit dry. And they're suggesting that they probably thought it was destined for the servants' hall rather than the family table. I think just looking at the recipe, it's likely that it did because it included 50 eggs. So it must have been an immense cake, <laughs> a, a, a little bit like one of these massive 12 cakes that would have been popular earlier in the century, which were really designed to be divided up and handed out to the entire household and hmm. um, there's also a recipe for roast swan in uh, in um, Avis's book and we know swan was a real delicacy it's something that Queen Victoria particularly liked and it's often associated with Christmas time because that's when it was at its best swan's meat was was really uh, at its most tender at Christmas time and we know there was a thriving swan trade in Norfolk which is where Avis worked before she moved toward the end. In the, uh, she worked there in the 1870s at Langley Hall, so it's quite likely she would have picked up that recipe then. And she also includes several recipes for things like preserving citrus fruits and pineapples and things like that. Uh, and we know that such candied fruits, when you candy them, they're ideal for festive dishes because you can... Um, 
you can sort of decorate the tops of dishes with them and they sort of flicker in the candlelight and so they were a staple ingredient in things like Christmas puddings and mince pies of course as well so yeah there's quite a lot of dishes in there which you can associate with Christmas time. Well we've described some familiar dishes but also some pretty foreign ones to modern palates throughout this discussion. Do you have any examples of any other more contemporary Christmas dinners enjoyed particularly at English heritage sites? We know that the Courtaulds at Elton Palace that most of the, their Christmases in the 1930s, they spent them travelling. So in 1936, they were travelling across Africa and they spent Christmas Day in Egypt visiting the pyramids at Giza and the temples at, uh, in, the, in the desert near Cairo. But during World War II, they uh, were stuck at Eltham, so they did spend Christmas there with family and friends. And we have one particular photograph which shows 11 of them sitting down to Christmas dinner. And if you look carefully at the photographs, you can see that it looks like they've just finished their main courses and they're, uh, they're onto the coffees. But you can see some empty wine and cocktail glasses and also a bowl of apples on the table suggesting the sorts of desserts they might have been about to enjoy. But we do know that Ginny was very partial to Italian food so possibly there was an Italian sort of tinge to their Christmas meal as well although I, I suspect they probably had some of the traditional Christmas fare that you know was of the period as well. Mm. And she was the wife in this famous couple. She was yes. Yeah. Yes, I remember you said in a previous podcast that she was quite keen on garlic, which her dinner guests didn't quite like. Yes, yeah. And another thing they were very keen on was uh, was cocktails. So we know that they had a cocktail cabinet in the entrance hall. And as guests arrived for dinner, they would uh, serve them, Stephen Courtauld would serve them up a, a cocktail that they could take into dinner with them. Popular ones during the 1930s were things like, there was one called Sidecar, which was lemon juice, Cointreau and brandy. And then uh, there was also eggnog, of course, which was a sort of creamy, rich, milky punch, which would have milk, cream, sugar, eggs and brandy in. I don't know whether it would be really to my taste, but uh, obviously sort of thing that was very popular in the 1930s. Other things they would have eaten were very much the sort of things that we have today. Plum pudding was still very popular and you would often serve it now with brandy butter, which had made its first introduction in the 1930s. And there was also the customer pouring alcohol actually into your Christmas pudding and including it having sort of uh, brandy over the over the uh, over the Christmas pudding and pour, putting rum in your custard that's again a 1930s tradition uh, and you'd have lots of the, the sorts of starters you would expect to have over Christmas dinner again some things seem fairly what we'd expect today others quite different you know things like tomato soup was a real favorite of, for Christmas dinner in the 1930s but also lobster au gratin orange salad with celery surprise cod's row with butter lemon juice and, and pepper so you know a whole range of different types of things some of them which seem quite familiar others not so and of course the centerpiece would have been the Christmas turkey by this point served with bread sauce and stuffing but it would cost the average person a week's wages. So, you know, it was something that you saved up for. Let's bring Will back in for a quick wrap up. What do you think we can take away from our discussion then from the evolution of these festive feasts over time? All the things that Andrew has been saying kind of speak very well to what was going on previously. It's, it's about marking a transition in the year, 
It's about being with those who you care about and about celebrating and having a nice time, really making making what could be for, for most of us in England quite a dark and cold period. One thing I'm 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 struck by uh, off the back of what Andrew said about the turtles is how some of our Christmas habits had a negative impact on the wildlife of of the world. Given that I mentioned that uh, wild boar were rendered extinct, not necessarily by Christmas, but but certainly Christmas may have had a role in the 13th century, and then green turtles almost rendered extinct by the habits of our of our near modern contemporaries i find that quite a striking takeaway <laughs> yeah and i think also the thing that was quite striking was the fact that the two turkeys was part of the rental agreement between landowners and tenants but they're still kind of exploiting their tenants in a way yeah they are indeed i mean and I mean, the thing that i take away from it is the just the importance of meat in all these dishes right through the period and you know and and the fact that gradually over time you get like a sort of other types of things in the dishes and you get a, a greater sort of diversity of the desserts you get more of the vegetables and whatever but it still really is that big meat dish the big roast turkey at the set as the centerpiece which harks back to the the boar's head or the sirloin of beef from earlier centuries it's really interesting and the fact that you get mince pies are really a sort of a symbol of that they start off an entirely meat dish and then you gradually get less meat and more sugar and fruit as you go through time just sort of reflecting our changing tastes and as Will was saying you know the introduction of sugar and spices in the period of colonialism being such an important factor in changing our tastes of Christmas and the way that we consume Christmas food. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll take a closer look at the pagan roots of some Christmas customs, including card and gift-giving, decorating trees, and kissing under the mistletoe. The custom of kissing under the mistletoe actually emerged in London among servants in the late 18th century, when mistletoe was becoming a common upper-middle-class decoration. Thanks for listening. See you next time.